Well, good morning. Let's uh, pray and ask for God's assistance as we uh, inquire after him and his ways, and especially through the story of Abraham that we've been looking at over the last couple of weeks. And if you keep that passage open in front of you from Genesis 15, that'd be greatly, that would uh, be a great help. So let's pray. Give us grace, O Lord, not only to hear your word with our ears, but also to receive it into our hearts and to show it forth in our lives for the glory of your great name. Amen. God, are your promises true? It's one thing to believe the promises of God when your life seems blessed. At those times, I don't know about you, but for me, the presence of God seems to sparkle out of the very pavement beneath your feet. God seems palpable. You can touch him almost. You feel like he's around you and he supports you, that he's there. You are talking to him and he seems very, very real. But then there's those times when everything in your experience seems to say the opposite. It denies that God is good and true to his promises. Twenty years ago now, when I held the lifeless body of my stillborn nephew, Jonathan, in my arms, God seemed pretty absent. It seemed like a cruel and unfunny joke to have played on my dear sister to rob her of her firstborn. She and her husband are, to this day, faithful followers of the Lord Jesus Christ and I think, I think it's just true of those, those who would know them would back this up. I think they want nothing more than to serve Jesus Christ. But on that day, I felt like asking, what good has come out of it? Where was God in this God-forsaken moment? How could we be sure of the reality of God at that time when the world seemed so dark? When the word of God is confirmed by our experience, believing in God's promises is not so hard. But when the word of God and our experience clash, when they seem misaligned, we begin to doubt the word of God because our experience seems so much more there for us, so much more real, so much more, we think, trustworthy. Now, this was Abraham's experience too. He had heard, you might remember from a couple of weeks ago, he'd heard the word of God when he was 75 and childless and living in a, in a, a distant city from the promised land, which he was later to inherit. And he was told then by God, something somewhat out of the blue, we know not the context of it or how God spoke to him, that he would have a great inheritance, that he would be blessed by God and that he would have many descendants in a new land. It was an incredible promise, and looking at the aged body of Abraham, only a promise that God could make. Abraham and Sarah were, to put it delicately, past the age of making babies, even by mistake, if we're to be honest. But even so, on the basis of this word, Abraham's uprooted his family and taken them to a foreign country to start a new life. You can imagine the conversation that went on amongst his staff. Everything was just fine back in Ur until the old man started hearing things. I think he must have had a stroke. He thinks he and his old lady are going to have a baby. I think you've got more chance of growing wheat out of the sand than getting a bub out of that pear. 
And Abraham himself must have said to himself as the months and then the years rolled by, was I hearing things? Was I kidding myself? Was my mind going? Was I blinded by the grief of childlessness into this ridiculous hope? Everyone must think I'm a fool. And you get the impression from the way that Sarah is depicted in the story that she would have agreed with that, pretty much. Yes, she would have told him he was an old fool who needed to give up and find a golf course somewhere and retire quietly. So when the Lord speaks to Abraham in verse 1 of chapter 15, the reading we had today, and says to him, Don't be afraid, Abraham. I'm your shield. Your reward shall be very great. You could forgive Abraham for saying, look, I'm glad you've turned up, God, because there's something I've got to say. I've been meaning to tell you something. I've got a little bit of an issue, and it's this. At the moment, I'm just not getting it. I'm just not seeing what's been promised. We've been brought into the new land, but it's full of people, other people who think they've got a claim, claim on it. And right about now, I'm, I'm childless. We don't have any offspring. And this guy, Eliezer of Damascus, is going to inherit my, my stuff. He's really the next in line. That's it. How do I know that your promises are true? How do I know that you mean what you say? What's the plan here? Because I've been patient and you aren't delivering. What can you do to guarantee it to me? And perhaps in our own ways, we've all said this to God at some time or another. You might be saying this to God right now. There may be something in your experience that really feels like it just doesn't fit with the God who makes these extraordinary promises. Temptation and sin aren't being conquered in your life and you feel helpless to change, maybe even overwhelmed. You don't feel forgiven even though you are. Even though you've been told that you are. You certainly don't feel it. You feel deeply lonely. And you've been faithfully obedient to God in your personal life. And yet he hasn't provided for you the life partner that you've been expecting. Or maybe you've suffered a bereavement. Or that diagnosis which just seems to get worse as trip to the doctor follows trip to the doctor. Where God are you? What's the plan? Because I'm not seeing it. One of the great things about the Abraham story is how normal Abraham is. You can really identify with him. His faith, and he's supposed to be a great exemplar of faith, his faith is full of doubts. There's plenty of cracks in it. He's the great example of faith, and yet his faith has questions. He wrestles with, with the dissonance between what God promises and his experience in the here and now. He is impatient with God just as we are. But what is God's response to Abraham? Well, the key for this morning is a particular word that comes up in verse 18. It's a really special, crucial Bible word, a word that really shapes the Bible itself. It's the word Covenant, the word covenant. Another word for covenant is testament. And in fact, you could call the two parts of the Bible, the old covenant and the new covenant. It's that crucial a word. It's that significant. And that's the word we find used in verse 18 here in our passage. What is a covenant? It's an unusual word that we do use in 
ordinary. We do use that word in non-biblical settings, but it's an unusual word nonetheless. A covenant is like a treaty. It's more than a promise. It's an agreement that contains a promise, but is guaranteed with a sign. It's an agreement that contains a promise, but it's guaranteed with a sign. We make agreements like this all the time, and we symbolize them. When we have a wedding, we match promise and sign. We say, we stand here, we say, I will. And then we exchange rings. The ring being the symbol of the promises that are made. When we make a business agreement, we write down what we promise to do, and then we seal it with a handshake. To see, and we call that sealing the deal. It's a sign of the promise. When we are kids... Uh, or at least I think it was when we were kids, it might just be me, we make that pinky promise thing. You know, did you do that? No, Rod didn't. Uh, do you do that now? The pinky promise thing, you know, pinky promise is a way of kind of you hook the... You, uh, does anyone... Do I have to explain this? You, you, you link pinkies with the other person. You say, pinky promise. It's a sign that underscores, underlines the promise that you are making. Now, in the ancient Near East, kings would make... Uh, promises would make covenants with their vassals. So a big king, an important king, would come up to a small king and he would say, look, I promise to protect you and to look after you if you bring tribute to me. And then to sign, to seal this covenant, to ratify it, uh, they used to cut up animals into halves and both parties would walk through the priests as a sort of dramatic sign that they were bound together in the covenant. And that's what covenants do. They they limit what you are intending to do in the future because you're saying, I'm going to do this and not that, and I'm now bound by that. And that's the power of a promise that has become a covenant. It binds the person making the covenant. It ties them to their word. God makes a huge promise to Abraham. He takes him out into the night sky. There's no light pollution back then. Shows him the stars and says to him, Count those stars. Of course, Abraham can't. You can't count those stars, he says. You have no kids yet. But, says God, I made the stars of the heavens. I made the stars of the heavens. Like them, your children will be countlessly many. Abraham believes God. But then just after this, he starts to question him again. How can I know God? And so... Then there's this strange, unearthly ceremony that we heard about that God and Abraham perform. The five carcasses, the heifer, the ram, and the goat. It's as if you know, Abraham just had them handy, pulls them out, cuts them in half, as if that's an easy thing to do. I don't think it is. It would be an extremely messy, you know, you'd know what you were doing. You'd know you were actually involved in a very important thing because death had occurred, there was blood, that the pigeon and the turtle dove were there. And as night falls, then Abraham falls into the sleep. And in his dream, God tells him the story of his many descendants, that they will live in Egypt for a time, but then come back to the land of Canaan, the promised land. And then in the gathering darkness, Abraham could see this strange scene to add to the strangeness of the scene that was already strange. A smoking fire pot and a blazing torch appear and go between the pieces of the animals. What's all that about? The fire was the presence of God himself passing between the cuts of meat to say, I am making a covenant with you, Abraham. I am sealing the deal. You might remember the cloudy, fiery pillar 
from the Exodus that symbolised or was in fact the presence of God for the people. Here again, that fire is the, is the presence of God going between the pieces of meat saying, here I am making a covenant with you. I'm binding myself to you. I'm not just stringing you along here, Abraham. I will commit myself to you. I'm in it for real. You know, it struck me thinking about this that we don't think of God binding himself to us. We think about it the other way around. We think really that God is, first of all, the deliverer of commands and he issues the laws and the precepts and the statutes that bind us. He makes the rules. We are stuck with them. He takes away our freedom and he remains free to be who he is. But that's not how it is in the Bible at all. In the Bible, God is the one who is utterly, spectacularly, uniquely free. But who in his freedom commits himself to us? Here we have God binding himself to human beings. God is not bound by anything. Does God answer to the chairman of the board? Is there some executive committee that God has to front each month and provide a report to? Well, of course not. Is there some parliament or constitution to whom he is subject? Not at all. And yet... God, who from his genius for free creativity made the stars of the heavens themselves, he says to Abraham, he comes to human beings and says, for, my, for your sake, I will commit myself. I will restrict myself and limit myself. I here make a pact with you. I will do this and I won't do the other. This is the response to Abraham's question to God. Do you really mean what you say? Can I trust you or are you hoaxing me? That question, which we have as well, God says to that, I not only mean what I say, I will give you a sign that I mean it. I'm going to put some skin in the game. That word covenant, it comes up again in the New Testament, the new covenant, when Jesus, the night before he died, talked about his body and blood as signs of the new covenant. A new covenant that God is making with humankind. As with the covenant with Abraham, God commits himself to human beings for their sake, in love. He is present with them, just as God was present for Abraham. Where is God then? God is here among us. Though he's not obliged to, he's committed himself in flesh and blood to us. He has become one of us. God binds himself to us. So what are we to do? How are we to respond to the promising and covenanting God? What does Abraham do? Well, have a look at verse 6. It's one of the key verses in the passage. And in fact, uh, it's one of the key verses that the New Testament will pick up, uh, particularly in Paul's letter to the Romans. It's this verse, verse 6. Abraham believed the Lord and the Lord reckoned it to him or counted it to him or credited it to him as righteousness. In other words, Abraham had faith in what God said. He believed him, that word belief, faith, trust, they're all the same in the biblical languages, Abraham believed God. He took him at his word. 
It's how promises between human beings work, of course. When we believe a promise that someone makes, we attach ourselves to it. We, we belong to it as, as much as they have bound themselves to that promise. We have attached ourselves to it as well. We believe that that's the future reality that will happen. And so we act as if it will be our future, which is why broken promises are so deeply disappointing to us. Once, when Simon was aged about nine, we were in London and we had to go home and just couldn't go and see an exhibition that was on in the Science Museum that day. It's just the end of the day and the other kids were tired and we needed to go home and there was this great exhibition and I said to Simon, I said, I promise, I did, I promise that we'll come back to this exhibition on the Antarctic, I think that was it, and we'll see it. And so Simon happily came home and, of course, the exhibition closed before I could keep my promise. And let me tell you, Simon has never forgotten it. He reminded me of it this week. His faith in me had been sadly disappointed. But faith in God does not disappoint us. See what it does for Abraham. It was reckoned to him as righteousness. That is by trusting in the promises of God. Abraham received the blessing of right standing with God. He discovered as he bound himself to God by faith that God had attached himself to him, that he had been bound to God in this remarkable contract, this covenant. Now, we find it hard to understand this thing called faith and belief. We, we try and make it something more special than it is. It's a very ordinary thing that we have every day in all sorts of ways. We sometimes talk about faith as if it's a moral virtue, like patience or kindness. And I talk to people and they'll say to me, oh, you're a minister, of course. It must be easy for you. I don't have your faith. I just don't have that. As if they were saying, I don't have your patience or kindness or generosity. It's just not something I have in me. Or the other way we think about it is we think of it as an intellectual thing, particularly when we use the word believe to mean faith. We talk about believing certain propositions, like I believe in God becomes something like I believe that water boils at 100 degrees. But Abraham helps us to see that biblical faith is not believing something, but believing someone. It's not believing something, it's believing someone. It's the kind of faith you have when you believe that your father will take you to a show because he says he will. It's personal and it's ordinary. You have faith, all, you, you and I have faith all the time in all kinds of things. It doesn't take a particular sort of, particular sort of super spiritual person to have it. The other thing about this story of Abraham and his faith is this. You notice that he has faith but that he still questions God. He still stuffs up, makes mistakes, and he makes terrible mistakes, in fact. If he's an example of faith, then he shows us that faith can be pretty weak and still be enough. He believes God in verse 6, but then by verse 8, he's questioning God all over again. And I think that's very important for us to know, especially if you here today are a bit of a skeptic or a bit hesitant or even today feeling that becoming a Christian is something that is out of reach. I know there are people who come to St. Mark's who would say, I come, but I don't identify as a Christian yet. It just seems too far off for me. Faith seems too high a standard. Look at Abraham's faith. 
It was enough to have him accepted by God. It was credited to him, reckoned to him as righteousness. It was enough for him to be called righteous, though he was in every way a mess. In the next chapter, he and his wife will be grabbing a slave girl called Hagar to make her pregnant in their impatience with God to get things done. Now, this is not to go easy on Abraham for his doubts and failings or to go easy on us for our doubts and failings and say they don't matter. But it does tell us that even the faith of Abraham with his doubts and failings is enough to attach him to the powerful promises of God. And so for you and I today, you may be filled with doubts and misgivings. You may be aware of your own failings. You may doubt your own strength to cling to God's promises. People always say to me, I'm not a very good Christian. When we read the story of Abraham, we discover there's no other sort. These are not things to ignore. We learn from Abraham that even this weak faith, a coal faintly glowing in the ash rather than a burning log, is plenty. Why? Because it is faith in someone utterly trustworthy and utterly strong. It is the God of the Lord Jesus Christ we are dealing with. And even when we are weak, he is strong. When we are wavering, he is faithful and relentless, as we heard last week, relentless in keeping his promises. In the midst of the everyday sorrows of our lives, then, how can you know that God will keep his promises? How could I know that that even as I held the body of my dead nephew, Jonathan? And what we always want, of course, is some inner experience of God firsthand that will make us believe some incontrovertible proof Internally, some experience that will change everything. And that's something that our culture prizes in particular. We, in our day and age, we prize experience as the foundation for every belief. We, don't, we say, does it feel true? Do you know it in your heart? Or I know this is true because I just know that it's true. I just know. We demand, then, that God show us a sign that isn't simply out there, but in here, in my experience. But the problem is, as we find out in the story of Abraham and in our own experience, is that experience isn't as solid as we think. Experience comes and goes. And our feelings about what we have experienced change as well. If our faith is based on our experience, the minute our experience changes, our faith is rocked. This, it seems, happens to Abraham. But what did he learn here? And what are we to learn? Firstly, God's character is good. God is the Lord, the compassionate and steadfast God. Slow to anger, abounding in mercy and steadfast love. His character is good. But secondly, his track record of keeping his promises is good. That's why we have the whole of the Bible, so that we can see that over time, God keeps his promises to his people. But thirdly, God has put his name on the line. God has put some skin in the game. God has made a covenant binding himself with human beings. If you need a sign of this covenant, go out at night and look at the stars and remember God's word to Abraham 
so shall your descendants be. And know that by faith, there are millions of spiritual descendants of Abraham. Children of Abraham by faith. Millions. But there's another, even more powerful sign. The sign of this covenant is the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus bled for this sign. He's made a huge down payment to show that he means it. God has in the death of his son. So be like Abraham and cling to God for dear life. Cling to him when, whether life seems amazing or it seems bleak. Believe him because of who he is. And despite everything, his word is true because he is true. And nothing that happens to you will change that.